Welcome to Trifecta Now, Living a Course in Miracles. This is season five, and it's called The Book Club. Chapter two continued. Welcome back. I made a genuine attempt to start the live book club last Monday. It was the most unusual thing. At first, I could not get the camera to synchronize with the program I was using. Then I got it going and everything was good. And then the mic wouldn't work. (laughs) Then I tried to go live and it said that I had technical difficulties and I could not go live at this time. I have to say, while I am not a computer genius by any means, I am pretty computer savvy. It seemed that nothing I could do would work. I started preparing hours ahead of time. So it wasn't like I tried to do this the last minute either. It wasn't working. I chose to look at, it as a, look at it as a sign. I'm not supposed to be doing it at this time, I guess. I, I can't think of anything else. I cannot figure out why I was having such difficulty. But I have decided that I'm going to go see someone and find out how this works and uh, get some professional help with this and then plan a live book club for the future. So I don't think they, I don't think the universe doesn't want me to do it ever. I think there's something saying don't do it now or don't do it yet. <clears throat> so I have a book club right now with you people. Um, so we will continue with this and we'll keep doing it in the podcast mode with the hopes that down the road, I can do a live one so people could see me as well. Hear me talk, see me, see my face. All right. So we left off on chapter two, page 31 called cause and effect. We will finish off chapter two today and continue a little ways into chapter three. Uh, So it'll probably be between chapters. I just want to cover not a lot, but I want to cover a decent amount of information that it gives everybody time to think about what they're doing. Okay, so page 31, cause and effect, says this, paragraph one says this, you may have, you may still complain about fear, but you nevertheless persist in making yourself fearful. I have already indicated that you cannot ask me to release you from fear. I know it does not exist, but you do not. If I intervened between your thoughts and their results, I'd be tampering with the basic law of cause and effect, the most fundamental law there is. I would hardly help you, sorry, Yeah, I would hardly help you if I depreciated the power of your own thinking. This would be in direct opposition to the purpose of this course. It is much more helpful to remind you that you do not guard your thoughts carefully enough. You may feel that at this point, it would take a miracle to enable you to do this, which is perfectly true. You are not used to miracle-minded thinking but you can be trained to think that way. The next page, page 32, number three, paragraph three at the top starts with this. Both miracles and fear come from thoughts. If you are free to choose one, you would also be, you would also not be free to choose the other. By choosing the miracle, you have rejected fear, if only temporarily. You have been fearful of everyone and everything. You are afraid of God, of me, and of yourself. 
Sentence eight says a little further down says the fearful must miscreate because they misperceive creation. When you miscreate, you are in pain. The cause and effect principle now becomes a real expedier through only, though only temporarily, sorry, though only temporarily. Sentence 13 in that same section says the fundamental conflict in this world then is between creation and miscreation. All fear is implicit in the second and all love in the first. The conflict is therefore one between love and fear. So I'm just going to go over this just a little bit. I know that in my other book clubs, people were like, what did you just say? So what the, what is trying to say about cause and effect at this point in time is one, that God gave us free will you know, and to step in and to try to control us and control that free will is against what the laws that God set out for us are. So he's not going to do that. The other thing, it does mention something about you are afraid of God, of me, and of yourself. So when um, the book refers to in the first person, like of me or I, that's Christ speaking. So I wanted to be clear that everybody understood that. Then they are also talking here about miscreating versus creation. So God created creation, right? And in turn, we have the ability to create as well. But not in this world, not in the mindset that we are in. And so the illusion of this world, the illusion of our egos, the one that the world that our egos have created, which are attached to bodies and things, that's when we're miscreating. So that's what they mean by miscreate. So it says in sentence eight of paragraph three there, it says the fearful must miscreate because they misperceive creation, right? If we're seeing this world through our own eyes and not the eyes of God, then we're not seeing what God sees and we're not being part of the eternal. We're just being part of this time period. And then in the th- sentence 13 further down says the fundamental conflict in this world then is between creation and miscreation. All fear is implicit in the second. So that's all fears in miscreation and love is in creation. The conflict therefore is one between love and fear, which is the fundamental basis of this book as well, saying that if you are fearful, then you don't, then you're not in love. You don't feel love, perfect love, because fearful, uh, perfect love has no fear there. Paragraph four, it has already been said that you believe you cannot control fear because you yourself made it and your belief in it seems to render it out of your control. Sentence four um, in paragraph four, it says the true resolution rests entirely on mastering, mastery through love. So once we understand love for what it really is, not this world love, but perfect love, one with no conditions and no attachments, then that's when, and that's how we master it. And once we master it, then we understand creation. Paragraph uh, five says, nothing and everything cannot coexist. To believe in one is to deny the other. Fear is really nothing and love is everything. Whenever light enters darkness, the darkness is abolished. What you believe is true for you. Sentence 11 at the very bottom of that page says, time is essentially a device by which, next page, 33, by which all compromise in this respect can be given up. It only seems to be abolished by degrees because time itself involves intervals that do not exist. 
sentence 14 says the statement, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, needs only one slight correction to be meaningful in this context. He gave it to his only begotten son. So if we change that around, they say, for God so loved the world that he gave it to, uh, he gave it to his only begotten son, that whoever is ever so believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's, that's the issue is that, and, and another thing that I want to make clear in this book is that they mentioned the son Shev, which means all of us, and the son of God is mentioned a lot of, a lot of times in what a lot of us have been conditioned to believe is that when we hear the word, when we hear those words, the Son of God, we think of Jesus Christ. But this book is referring to us because we are, we are all the sons and daughters of God. So in this case, he's saying he gave all of us, not not just one son. He gave all of us the ability to have everlasting life. Paragraph six says, it should especially be noted that God has only one son. Again, we're not talking one, one is is italicized here, meaning all of us are one. For if all his creations are his sons, every one must be an integral part of the whole sonship. The sonship in its oneness transcends the sum of its parts. So that's basically saying in that section that we are all one. So he can refer to one son, but he means every one of us. Sentence seven, a little bit further down, says, any part of the sonship can believe in error or incompleteness if he so chooses. However, if he does so, he is believing in the existence of nothingness. The correction of this error is the atonement. So he's saying that if you want to believe um, that we are incomplete, if you want to believe that you are not whole, then you're believing in nothingness because there is no lack. You have no lack. None of us do. Paragraph seven, sentence two says, readiness is only the prerequisite for accomplishment. The two should not be confused. As soon as a state of readiness occurs, there is usually some degree of desire to accomplish, but it is by no means necessarily necessarily undivided. The state does not imply more than a potential for a change of mind. Confidence cannot develop fully until mastery has been accomplished. We have already attempted to correct the fundamental error that fear can be mastered and have emphasized that the only real mastery is through love. So before I start the meaning of the last judgment, I'm just going to clarify this. So atonement has come in again, and atonement in this case, just to, to remind everyone, it means the undoing. So to try to undo all of our thoughts, all of the errors we have in our mind about who we are. Um, not so much about this world, because I think the world is what we create it to be, but it's who we are, who we truly are. So then in the paragraph seven, it talks about readiness. And they're saying there's really, there's only one prerequisite for readiness, and that is your openness to want to accomplish something. And readiness will occur when you are open to it, right? And that's all that it requires. And obviously it's saying a fear is abolished through mastering love. So the sooner you can understand what love 
perfect love is and um, understand what that means to you, the sooner you will understand that you have total control over your fear. So the next section is um, the meaning of the last judgment on page 33 at the bottom. Now, I didn't start there. So we have to turn the page. And I actually started uh, paragraph one. And on the next page, it's sentence four. And it says this. Since creative ability rests in the mind, everything you create is necessarily a matter of will. It also follows that whatever you alone make is real in your own sight, though not in the mind of God. This basic distinction leads directly into the real meaning of the last judgment. So the last judgment, paragraph two says, the last judgment is one of the most threatening ideas in your thinking. This is because you do not understand it. Judgment is not an attribute of God. Paragraph three says, the last judgment is generally thought of as a procedure undertaken by God. Actually, it'll be undertaken by my brothers with my help. This is with Christ's help. It is a final healing rather than a metting out of punishment, however much you may think that punishment is deserved. Punishment is a concept totally opposed to right-minded thinking, and the aim of the last judgment is to restore right-mindedness to you. The last judgment might be called a process of right evaluation. It simply means that everyone will finally come to understand what is worthy and what is not. Paragraph four says, the first step towards freedom involves a sorting out of the false from the true. On the next page, page 35, paragraph five at the top says, the term last judgment, in quotations, is frightening not only because it has been projected onto God, but also because of the association of last with death. This is an outstanding example of upside-down perception. If the meaning of the last judgment is objectively examined, it is quite apparent that it is really the doorway to life. No one who lives in fear is really alive. Your own last judgment cannot be directed towards yourself because you are not your own creation. Sentence seven, a little bit, uh, sentence eight, sorry, a little bit further down says, the purpose of time is solely to give you time to achieve this judgment. It is your own perfect judgment of your own perfect creations. When everything you retain is lovable, there is no reason for fear to remain with you. This is your part in the atonement. So this is the end of chapter two, and we're going to move into chapter three, which is the innocent perception. But before I do that, I'm going to just uh, just have a little comment about this, the meaning of the last judgment. I always found this really interesting when I read this, because as a Christian, growing up as a Christian, um, specifically a Catholic, I um, I really ha- had that belief that you know we were going to be judged by God, that everything we did eventually we would stand before our maker and we would be held accountable as if as if punishment was going to occur this book i found this incredibly uplifting and you know releasing a lot of that those fears that came with all of that when i read this section of the book when you know it was clearly stated that the last judgment 
How can our creator, who never judges us, because we've never been struck, struck down dead. I don't know if anyone knows of someone who's been struck down dead by God, but since I don't believe that's ever happened, um, he's never he's never been that. He's been our loving uh, father, our giving father. He's never been our condemning father, but um, we've been taught somehow, some of us have been taught to believe that. So I liked how it said the last judgment was really about Coming forward, you know, when you when you move on to the eternal life that God has given us, and you get to look back on this life that we you created, that we created, and you get to sort of assess if you figured it out, if you figured out why you came here and what your purpose was. And if you didn't, then I guess you have to sort that out with your creator and decide from there where you go. But I... I thought it was so interesting when I read this and how fear is so much attached to it and that the understanding of time as well, because the book will consistently tell us that we are eternal beings. and But it also explains time, like time in this realm and our understanding of time. And I like that it says the purpose of time, this is at the end, is solely to give you time to achieve this judgment. So the time we have here and the time we make here is about figuring out what we're supposed to do here. What is our purpose? What is it for? Why are we here? And once we figure that out, that's where the next step in our journey occurs. So I'll start on with chapter three. We're going to do atonement without sacrifice, miracles as true, and miracles as true perception. And then we're going to end we're not going to do perception versus knowledge. We'll do that in two weeks. So the atonement, which is on page, it's called the atonement without sacrifice on page 36, starts off like this. A further point must be perfectly clear before any residual fear still associated with miracles can disappear. The crucifixion did not establish the atonement. The resurrection did. Many sincere Christians have misunderstood this. No one who is free of belief in scarcity could possibly make this mistake. If the crucifixion is seen from an upside down point of view, it does appear as if God permitted and even encouraged one of his sons to suffer because he was good. This particularly unfortunate interpretation, which arose out of projection, has led many people to be bitterly afraid of God. Such anti-religious concepts enter into many religions. Yet the real Christians should pause and ask, ask themselves, how could this be? Is it likely that God himself would be capable of the kind of thinking which his own which his own words have clearly stated is unworthy of his son. Paragraph two says, the best offense, as always, is not to attack another person's position, but rather to protect the truth. It is unwise to accept any concept if you have to invert a whole frame of reference in order to justify it. This procedure is painful in its minor applications and genuinely tragic on a wider scale. Persecution frequently results in an attempt to justify the terrible misperception that God himself 
persecuted his only son on behalf of salvation. The very words are meaningless. In mild sentence seven, it says, in milder forms, a parent says, this hurts me more than it hurts you and feels exonerated in beating a child. Can you believe our father really thinks this way? It is so essential that all such thinking is dispelled that we must be sure that nothing of this kind remains in your mind. I was not punished, and this is when he says I, he's referring to Christ is speaking right now. I was not punished because you were bad. The holy benign lesson the atonement teaches is lost if it is tainted with this kind of distortion in any form. So atonement is the undoing, and he's referring to if if you want to undo the kind of thought system that's been created in your life and your understanding of what and who God is, then you have to understand that our way of thinking has been totally manipulated in order to think very differently from what really should we really should be thinking about our Father and our Creator. So on the next page, paragraph four says, sacrifice is a notion totally unknown to God. It arises solely from fear, and frightened people can be vicious. Sacrificing in any way is a violation of my injunction that you should be merciful even as your as your Father in heaven is merciful. It has been hard for many Christians to realize that this applies to themselves. Good teachers never terrorize their students. To terrorize is to attack, and this results in rejection of what the teacher offers. The result is learning failure. Paragraph 6 um, near the bottom of that page says, innocence is incapable of sacrificing anything because the innocent mind has everything and strives only to protect its wholeness. It cannot project. It can only honor other minds because honor is the natural greeting of the truly love to others who are like them. The lamb taketh away the sins of the world in the sense that the state of innocence or grace is one in which the meaning of the atonement is perfectly apparent. The atonement is entirely unambiguous. It is perfectly clear because it exists in light. Only the attempts to shroud it in darkness has made it inaccessible to those who do not choose to see. So that that is a big statement. What it's trying to say is that we're all innocent. We are all innocent. We have innocence in us. That's who we were made of. That's who we are. But because we think that we're not, or that we have somehow done something wrong, and because of that, those things we've done wrong, we've punished ourselves and said we're not worthy, and we lack something. And that's how we've come to believe that our innocence is gone. And it said that innocence is a state of grace, right? And the atonement is entirely unambiguous. So when you're undoing your thought system and when you're undoing the behaviors of this world to become someone who is totally innocent and open to everybody without judgment, without condemnation, then you are unambiguous because you, you're you not going to feel a certain way except for love, hopefully, towards anybody else. There'll be no judgment. And that's what God is looking for. On page 38, uh paragraph eight says the innocence of God is the true state of the mind of his son. In this state, your mind knows God for God is not symbolic. He is fact. 
knowing his son as he is, you realize that the atonement, not sacrifice, is the only appropriate gift for God's altar, where nothing except perfection belongs. The understanding of the innocent is truth. This is why their altars are truly radiant. Okay, and so the so if we want to go back over that little bit in his atonement without sacrifice, it's it's cutting back that whole notion that sacrifice is important and part of our existence here in this world. We have come to believe that, but in fact, um, what Christ is saying in this book is that sacrifice was is never was never and is never a requirement. You don't have to sacrifice anything. The only thing we have to do is we have to change, shift our perception, and change the way we see this world and others in it. That's what they're looking for. So if you notice, I'm not reading the whole thing, obviously. I'm leaving that for you to read to read sections, and you can ask me any questions. I'm just trying to highlight the different sections so that you have a better understanding of what you are reading. Miracles as True Perception is on page 38. Paragraph two starts, paragraph two, sentence three starts like this. The partly innocent are apt to be, oh no, I'm going to start the whole thing, sorry. Paragraph two, innocence is not a partial attribute. It is not real until it is total. The partly innocent are apt to be quite foolish at times. It is not until their innocence becomes a viewpoint with universal application that it becomes wisdom. Innocence or true perception means that you never misperceive and always see truly. More simply, it means that you never see what does not exist and always see what does. On the next page, page 39, paragraph three, sentence six, it said, I have said that only what God creates or what you create with the same will has any real existence. This then is all the innocent can see. They do not suffer from distorted perception. Paragraph four, sentence five says, to be one is to be of one mind or will. When the will of the sonship and the father are one, their perfect accord is heaven. Paragraph five says, nothing can prevail against a son of God who commends his spirit into the hands of his father. By doing this, the mind awakens from its sleep and remembers its creator. All sense of separation disappears. The Son of God is part of the Holy Trinity, but the Trinity itself is one. There is no confusion within its levels because they are of one mind and one will. This single purpose creates perfect integration integration, and establishes the peace of God. Yet this vision can be perceived only by the truly innocent because their hearts are pure. The innocent defend true perception instead of defending themselves against it. So again, making reference to innocence, but not innocence of a child. I mean, I think we make reference to child's innocence because it's in, it's the part of our life when we are the most aware. We are most open to seeing who God really is and what he's all about. And that's why, you know, the term out of the mouth, mouths of bays come from, because they say such beautiful, wonderful things at times. So we are all innocent and and we have to get back to that childlike state in our minds where we're open to everything and where we didn't judge anything. Paragraph six, 
on that same page, 39 says, the way to correct distortions is to withdraw your faith in them and invest it only in what is true. You cannot make untruth true. If you are willing to accept what is true in everything you perceive, you let it be true for you. Truth overcomes all error, and those who live in error and emptiness can never find lasting solace. If you perceive truly, you are canceling out misperceptions in yourself and in others simultaneously. Because you see them as they are, you offer them your acceptance of their truth so they can accept it for themselves. This is the healing that miracles induce. That is the last section of the, uh, that we're going to do for today. Perception versus knowledge will be in two weeks, and I'll start then. So just the last comment about this miracles as true perception um, just goes back to where our minds need to be in order to see the world as it truly is. We created this, we see this world as we decided we wanted to see it. There is another level to it. There's another layer that we have closed and hidden in the dark and have decided it's not important and decided it sh- we shouldn't see it. But all we have to do is release the world from judgment. And that's hard. I know that because we've grown up believing that, you know, judging people is the thing to do. But if we can release that, that is when we open our minds to that innocence again. So in closing... Um, I would like to say that I'll be uploading another episode in two weeks. We will continue with chapter three, uh, perception versus knowledge on page 40. If you can read some of it ahead of time, that might be helpful in hearing uh, what I have to say. Thanks for listening. I can be contacted by email at trifectanow3 at gmail.com. If you have, if you'd like to ask a question, share a comment, or just say hello. I would like to say hello to my friends in Germany. Hello, everybody. I know they're from Frankfurt. There is a number of people who are listening now. So hello, welcome. Thanks for sharing the love. Remember, this is our journey. Let us together find our way. Live in this moment. It's the only one that truly matters. Always love, Denise.